Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 January films in today's episode. What's this? What's this? The simply sensational standing ovation of Royal Dalton Musical! What is this? What is this? Today's episode, all about the films I saw in January for the first time. Uh, so this will include a couple of recent films, a bunch of 2019 films on the list, but there are, well, uh, I guess it's not fair to say that there are other stuff. There's one film that, two films that aren't from uh, this, basically the last year. Uh, so some of those may not get as much talk, much time, but uh, especially if I've talked about them already, but uh, I will try to, you know, just uh, give some impressions and reminder, especially if it's something I've already touched on. So, without any further ado, uh, I'm recording this a little late on Friday, so uh, this episode probably gets released closer to four than three, but getting it out anyway. So, without any further ado, uh, let's jump into January's top ten new films. Countdown ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, oh no! Number ten is a foreign language documentary that I saw January 3rd of January. January 3rd of January 2020. Um, It's 115 minutes long, just shy of two hours. It is a 2019 film, my brief summary. The last film from Agnes Varda, shedding light on her experiences as a writer and director. I gave this a 75. It has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is, of course, Varda by Agnes. Um, I'll be I'll be quite honest. Uh, prior to Faces Places, I didn't have much of a uh, appreciation. Might not be the right word, but at least uh, an understanding, um, a recognition for who Agnes Varda was. Uh, of course, uh, you know that came out a couple of years ago, and in the time since, uh, I've. I haven't watched a lot of her movies. I've seen uh, Varna, Varda by Agnes makes three when you include Faces, Places, and Cleo from five to seven. But outside of the films of hers I've seen, uh, my understanding of her and, and the way she kind of paved a, the way for a lot of different uh, female filmmakers, uh, my understanding of her has grown. And so, so Varda by Agnes does a lot to kind of further that understanding. It's a very crazy documentary in terms of the way it's presented. Uh, Parts of it are just Agnes talking, you know, to an audience, to you, the viewer. And other parts we're seeing, uh, you know, parts of her films dissected either by her or by someone else. We're seeing uh, friends of hers, people she's worked with, people who looked up to her, people who she was inspired by. Uh, listening and talking and, and describing what she means. And we see what she calls sinner writing um, in, in, you know, explaining her experience as a director, what it was like for her uh, when she was starting out, when she was in the, you know, heyday of her career, and, and now when she as she's kind of putting in her, her final film. 
as she says it is. And it's one of those documentaries, and there's kind of a... There's almost a ceiling on on the types of documentaries, types of documentary that this is, and I say almost because Varda by Agnes does manage to buck a lot of the sort of cliches and tropes of a movie like this, where it's strictly you know somebody talking about film. You know, I've seen you, you, there are plenty of documentaries you can watch where you see directors and producers and writers and actors and so on discussing a movie or a person, uh, whether that's an actor who's just recently died, whether that's a film that has left a huge legacy behind it, like The Shining or 2001 A Space Odyssey or so on and so forth. And as as insightful as some of these documentaries can be, there's always, I don't know, there always feels like there's an upward limit on, on how much, you know, because how much more than sort of a critical essay, a comprehensive um, you know, provocation can these types of films be? And most of them aren't anything more than that. They they kind of fall short of, you know, doing anything besides uh, creating an, a conversation about, well, why did Kubrick choose to make X or Y? What 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 pattern did he want? You know, why 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 did um. Hitchcock, you know, tell, tell how to analyze this scene from from Psycho and, and you know so on and so forth. And those are interesting. I love that style. I like seeing you know a dozen different people look at the same thing and see it in a different light. I, I love watching and, and hearing and, and reading their expressions when they talk about it. I watched a documentary about Ingrid uh, Ingmar Bergman the other day, and there's a lot of that. It's a lot about it's directors talking about Bergman and what he's how he's impacted directors in general and and the film landscape and some of them love you know Fanny and Alexander and some of them didn't like Fanny and Alexander and they kind of talk about the way that these films uh you know compared to them and that's great I love that I think that's so much fun I I can watch those a lot but Varda by Agnes as much as it has one foot in that style of documentary Agnes Varda is able to give it enough of a twist to make it feel fresh, new, invigorating, uh, to make it feel more like a journey through her than it is through her films, uh, which so often is how it feels. Um, You know, it gives you context for the films she made. It, It appear, you know, it gets you inside of her head in a way that some of these other films don't. Um, you know, I, I when I watched it, the main thing that was running through my head the whole time was when I finally get to see, you know, this movie that she made and that movie that she made and this movie, this documentary is going to help recontextualize that experience. And it's because of Agnes's love of film her her love of creating stories and telling them and and sharing them with everyone else that and it comes through in in Varda by Agnes that translates into you know an experience that a viewer an audience member can not only enjoy but but connect with and I think while 
you know, Varda by Agnes itself isn't exactly, you know, it's not a narrative-based film, but she gives you enough of a story in her, you know, in, in telling what how she got to where she is and in, in explaining how her journey through, you know, being a director, being a filmmaker has, has led her to where it has. And I think that's what makes it a little bit a step above some of these other documentaries that that fall in the same same realm. So my number ten, I really like Varda by Agnes. Um, again, if you haven't seen Agnes Varda films, I think there's still a lot to take out of this, and it'll make you want to see our, uh, Agnes Varda films, which is a positive. So number ten, Varda by Agnes. Number nine is an animated film that I saw January 28th. Uh, it is seven minutes long. It is a very short film. It is from 2020. Uh, my summary, two kids go for a canoe ride where they must find a way to connect with each other. I gave this a 75. It does not have a score in Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Erica Milsom, and it is called Loop. Loop. If you're not familiar, Loop is a Pixar Spark short released earlier this year. It is on Disney Plus now. You can go check it out. Loop follows an autistic girl and a chatty, you know, talkative kid who go out for a canoe ride. <clears throat> who go out for a canoe ride. There's I think there's a comparison to be made with between Loop and Hair Love, which was the Oscar winner for Best Animated Short Film this past year. Hair Love tells a short and, and sweet story that isn't one you get to see on, on in films that often, you know, with protagonists who aren't white, with the uh, the challenge, the dilemma of the short film is unruly hair and you know, it, it's, it's, as a white person, I don't have that issue. My hair doesn't work that way. And so it is not, you know, I don't have to spend hours doing anything to it. Um, you know, I can't tell you the last time I combed, blue dry, blow dried, or, you know, did anything with my hair. And, and I mean, that's more of a personal thing. Like, I don't go... Uh, I don't get haircuts. I don't pay for haircuts. I do it all myself. Um, things like that. But, you know, outside of my own personal hair proclivities, I just, uh, you know, it's not something that I have firsthand experience with. Loop is a very similar style of short film, um, except instead of it being, uh, you know, black people's hair, it is autism. And... I like Hair Love a lot. I, I'm glad it won. I think what it's what it hopefully does for representation in film, short or otherwise, uh, will be uh, you know, is is great. And I think Loop is another step along that track. I have a cousin who is autistic, and you know I don't see him very often. Uh, and even when I do see him, uh, I don't spend a ton of time with him, and not that I. I I'm choosing not to spend any time with him, but he's a he's a pretty solitary guy. He likes his time to himself. He he has his own thing, and it's great. He does what he wants. 
Uh, and Loop does such a wonderful job of showing a character, an autistic character, and, you know, through Renee, uh, we get to experience the difficulties of, of an in, this kind of an, of that kind of an interaction and the rewards of that kind of an interaction. You know, uh, Renee, uh, as, as the autistic girl in the film and Marcus as the boy uh, who's, you know, out there paddling the canoe with her, they have, they don't have a real easy way of communicating with each other. They haven't, it's evident they haven't spent any time with each other and he has a singular view of what she is and I say what because it's a what you know for him he's you know he sees her as a an issue more than uh, a, a human being and that's you know a thing he has to overcome but it's not a thing that and I think there's a lot of people that see, uh, have the same view and I think Loop does a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job of showcasing uh, the flaws in both Marcus and Renee, and <clears throat> how he is ultimately much more than what he thinks of her, and, and his relationship with her grows when he realizes she is much more than what he thinks of her. And on this other side, uh, you know, she is in a different situation than she's usually been. And we see at the start of the short that um, one of the camp counselors is usually the one that goes out on the canoe rides with her. And she is kind of in unknown waters, which is very, very difficult for, for someone with autism. And she has to kind of, you know, it takes time, but she has to kind of uh, grow as well alongside him and, him being um, Marcus, so they both grow. There's no, you know, they're they're both flawed characters, and and to be able to share and tell all of that in in the span of seven minutes is so impressive. It uses glorious, beautiful animation. There's a couple of sequences that really highlight the the sound design in this film that which is wonderful, and it, it's it's really really beautiful, and. Uh, it's only seven minutes, so I hope people will check it out and watch it. So my number nine from 2020, uh, and, and number nine best film from January, One Ch uh, Loop. Sorry, skipping ahead, skipping ahead just a little bit. Uh, number eight, I kind of already said it, but is a documentary that I saw January 1st, 2020. It is 86 minutes long, so fairly short on the feature length side. 2019 film, my summary, a real look at the impact of the one-child policy in China. I gave it a 77. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it is called One Child Nation. So uh, it's on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out. It's directed by Nanfu Wang and Zhang Jialing, and it uh, it stars quote unquote stars Nanfu Wang as a mother who just 
in it has some similarities to Forsama to me in how it shares you know her personal experiences and and her life and and what how it's been impacted by the one child policy what it means for her to live in in China uh, with the one child policy how it not only impacts her and her kids but how it impacted her parents and her as well and it's it's a really eye-opening thing you know she talks to a lot of her family and friends and gets their opinions on on this policy and what it means for them and their lives which is uh really devastating really really devastating um you know the one child policy has been around uh, started in 1979 uh which is over a decade more than a decade uh earlier than i was born so i remember learning about it i think in in school and it never you know it is just always just something i understood as reality and and now i'm getting a, a deeper understanding of you know you know you can think about this idea and I'm sure a lot of possible issues with a one-child policy will spring to mind, and yet you 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 get to documentaries like this, and you realize you're only scratching the surface, uh, which is, I think, the biggest strength of One Child Nation is, you know, it's an, there's many obvious ways that a one-child policy is is flawed and and problematic and and difficult for people to go through. But um, it's the it's the ones that aren't that obvious. It's it's the sort of way that families are are divided by this by this policy. The way that you know the people you love and care about treat you and treat you know your decisions and and what you you do um, with all of the. You know, how how you react to, you know, when you want to have a kid, when you get pregnant, when you have a kid, when you decide what to do with that kid, um, you know, it's a very, very, very different culture. And One Child Nation does a really wonderful job of peering into that culture and and showing the the sort of uh, the good and the bad. There's a lot of bad. There's tons of bad. And I'm really impressed with Nanfu Wang's direction and, and the story she's able to tell um, with this documentary. So, One Child Nation, it's available for free if you have Amazon Prime. And uh, it's my number eight. It's my number eight. So, number seven. Number seven. Uh, a lot of these films are ones I was catching up on uh, at the end of 2019 into early 2020 to do my Circle of Film Award episode. This is another one uh, that never didn't get any recognition at for me from the Circle of Film Awards, but definitely a film I, I think worth checking out. I saw it January 11th, 2020. It is 112 minutes long. It is a 2019 film. My summary, an ordinary woman in her 30s becomes connected to the other women in her life. As I gave this a 78, has no score on Rotten Tomatoes. It is called Kim Ji-young, born 1982. 
It is directed by Kim Do Young, and it is a Korean film from South Korea, same place Parasite came from. It has a 3.8 average rating on Letterboxd. And to be a little more in depth about what the film is about, it was a based. It's based on a book that was a huge, huge hit in South Korea, where Kim Ji Young is one of the most you know popular, you know generic names for someone out over there. Not generic's probably generic's the wrong word, uh, you know. But but it's a whatever you know. If you have ten friends named you know, Michael, Kim is, is that, right? So throughout uh, Kim Ji Young, born 1982, it's it's a very different style of Korean film. I've, I've seen a handful of Korean films, uh, maybe more than most, but uh, definitely not enough. And a lot they they they're very genre challenging they they're very dynamic is as a way i would describe a lot of the korean films i've seen so far and that is not kim ji young at all it is a slower film it is a very you know much more traditional style of drama that i think people in the west would be more familiar with it's very methodical and it takes its time to drill down into what 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 it's trying to say, which is, um, and and what I think the beauty of the film is, you know, it's a it's a very Korean film in a lot of ways, uh, from not only the name to uh, just the the experiences and and the interactions that are on display in the movie, but it manages to be have have connections and and resonance outside of korea and the film is mostly about excuse me uh the role that this that our protagonist kim ji young has in society as a woman uh from being born as a woman and then the baggage that that brings with it to uh you know a lot of the, you know one one of the main elements I remember from this movie is there are scenes where she's just in the kitchen cooking uh, and is not able to eat with her family because she's cooking and you know you you get to watch her life play out as like a spectator almost and. The film really harps on the misogyny of this culture, and some of the aspects of it don't directly com- relate to what's ha- what happens in the United States or, or whatever country you're in. But the, it's it's not without its simple connections to you know the way women are treated here, and so throughout the film, Kim is. Uh, in her in her 30s, born in 1982, so she would have been 37 in 2019. Uh, she's slowly feeling her connection to 
all the other women that she's known in her life and the way that they felt when they were being mistreated, the way that they experienced uh, some of these misogynistic environments and scenarios that just don't, she will not accept. And uh, I love how, you know, it's, it's unlike, say, Birds of Prey, which tries to, you know, tries to address the same issues and, and does it in a very bombastic, over-the-top, exaggerated way. Kim Ji-young is is subtle. It's uh, very down-to-earth and it's very real, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, patriarchal society um, and also touching on, on other aspects of, you know, beyond just gender inequality to uh, depression to uh, mental health. Uh, there, there's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful in how simplistic it can be at times, but, you know, I, having seen many films that where, where the, where the thesis of these movies is women are people, uh, just like everyone else, it's very depressing to know that there are so many places, you know, Korea, here, wherever, where they're not treated that way. They don't have the opportunities. They are relegated to the cooking and the cleaning. They are relegated to watching from afar, not being able to, you know, be in, you know, front and center, uh, to be being mistreated by the people that love them from, you know, to strangers. And, uh, it is it is really really uh you know a lot of that comes through in in Kim Ji Young and i i really appreciate you know the performances uh the direction the delicacy uh not delicacy the delicateness delicateness uh that Kim Do Young that Jung Yoo Mi all treat this this film and this story with because it's it's really powerful. Um, it doesn't appear to be on any available services, uh, so I don't know where or when it'll be able to be watched, but it's one that I think is worth keeping your eyes out for, um, personally. So, number seven, Kim Ji Young, born 1982. The next film is, uh, again, another film from... 2019 and it is one that i watched in preparation for voting at the spirit awards uh it is it was nominated for best foreign film i believe i saw it january 14th 2020 it is 136 minutes long so about two and a quarter hours 2019 film summary two sisters are separated by their father each believing the other to be much farther away than they are it's a little, each believing the other to be much farther away than they are. Okay. Uh, I give it an 80. It has a 92 on Rotten Tomatoes. It is directed by Karim Ainouz, and it is called Invisible Life. Invisible Life uh, is a film that I think deserves a little more, uh, a little more respect, a little more um, attention has a 4.1 average rating on Letterboxd. Pretty good. It is Brazil. A Brazilian film. 
It takes place in Rio uh, in the, in the mid-50s, mid-1900s, 1950-ish. And two sisters, uh, Eurydice and Guida, are love each other. They care about each other. They they want you know want to. I don't know. They, 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 there's nothing between them. There's no sep- no separating them. They're inseparable, and they talk about everything. They love e- you know, etc., etc., etc. And they both have their own dreams, their desires, their wants, and so on and so and so forth. However, <clears throat> at a pivotal point early on in the film, uh, events transpire which cause their father. Uh, to basically gaslight both of them into thinking that the other has left Rio um, for good uh, and, and has gone so far away that you could never find them. And without the other, their half, their other half, they flounder in life. They struggle. It's difficult. They don't know where the other person is. They don't, you know, really get correspondence from the other person. Their dreams uh, suffer. Their relationships suffer. Their lives suffer. And it's horrifying to watch as they go through life just a couple of blocks away um, in Rio, unable to, to be reunited because you wouldn't even think of it. You wouldn't even expect it. You know, if you believe that your sister lives somewhere in, in another country, why would you ever think that they might be walking across on the other side of the street from you? Why would you even look, you know? And the film plays out that reality. It, it pushes it and, and, you know, the only people that know what's really going on are like are her their their dad really and he is such a son of a bitch you know having orchestrated this whole thing and and it's not you know it's not some grand cia level you know ruse it's just you know uh basically and an, uh done in effort to distance himself and his family from one of the sisters that he doesn't approve of and it's you know and and you know I look at these other films that I've been talking about Kim Ji Young and and One Child Nation and how the these sim, the these are the movies that we are getting now it are the these these marginalized mistreated um close-minded uh stories that women have to rise above and and overcome and it's it's so disheartening and and i i said this about i've i've had the same thought about films that uh show black people overcoming their marginalization uh, you know the situation in syria and and so on and so forth we get so many of these movies right now we have how many movies have come out in the last couple of years that involve a, a white cop shooting a black person, an unarmed black person, and we need more of them. You know, I'm not going to get tired of these stories. I'm not going to get tired of seeing them, these characters on my, in my films because 
it's so it's that important and invisible life does a very good job of showing how it's it's i think it's greatest commentary uh on on this on women and and you know their love for each other is how strong their bond is and how easily it is broken by a man a third party man and uh julia stockler and carol duarte uh hopefully i'm pronouncing those correctly uh give such fantastic performances uh i loved the direction i love the style that the film is shot in i love the way it feels i love the way it sounds uh it's a little long i think it's a little long but it is a beautifully gut-wrenching film um that um is also not available anywhere to watch so invisible life my number six from january 2020 number five is a film I, I have talked about to a degree, not a ton, but somewhat, and that is Weathering With You. Just said the title. January 15th, it's 105 minutes long, 2019 film. My summary, a girl has the power to bring the sunshine through the rain clouds. Gave it an 80, has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's called Weathering With You. It is directed by Makoto Shinkai. And yeah, it, it's... Shinkai obsessed with the weather obsessed with the sky you know that's kind of his thing the rain a lot of his films deal with those elements uh Hodaka is the main character he runs away from home to Tokyo where he runs into uh Hina and Hina is a um weather girl uh, I think that's the term they use, weather girl, rain, rain girl, weather girl. And she can pray for rain, and or rather for sun. Um, sun? Sunshine girl? Hmm, no, I don't remember. Uh, but they, you know, initially, when they meet and use this power, she's able to stave off this, you know, months long rain that's been happening and uh it it becomes a business you know they charge people to bring sunlight and sunshine to you know a a barbecue or an anniversary or a game or something to that effect uh which is probably how a lot of people would uh would would handle such an ability initially and then it becomes a little more complicated than that. You know, the lives that these characters lead outside of this ability uh, kind of catch up with them. Uh, Hadoka's on the run. He uh, is has has his own sorted past and, and also sorted present, uh, things that play out in the film that lead to ramifications later on. Uh, Hina and her ability have their own drawbacks, which are confronted in the film. She has a little brother, and he has a role in the movie. There's a couple of peripheral characters that um, interact primarily with Hidaka and and have, you know, they're the ones that kind of prop him up when he needs money, uh, having moved to Tokyo with nothing. So, 
you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but the driving force is the relationship between Hedoka and Hina and what how they, they care about each other and they care about Tokyo and they care about, you know, doing good deeds uh, in the sense of, you know, bringing the sun to everybody. And those feelings are truly tested. The music in Weathering With You is phenomenal. The, the songs themselves, but as well as well as the score and, and the combination that has with the animation is gorgeous. Uh, it's a beautifully beautiful looking film. It spent a few weeks in, in theaters uh, in January and maybe even into early February. I don't know if it's still there now, uh, but I assume, you know, eventually it'll be on some streaming site. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's still in theaters, but Weathering With You, Makoto Shinkai, if you've liked any of his other films, your name is incredible, absolutely amazing, and I think Weathering With You is worthy of being in the same sentence as, as your name, uh, even if it's not quite as good, but I kind of loved Weathering With You, I, I really enjoyed it, I thought it does a, you know, it's a, a really emotional story. And uh, Shinkai kind of leans into the emotion, uh, all for the good, all for the better. So number five is Weathering With You. Number four, it's a film I saw January 13th, 2020. It is 28 minutes long, another short film. It is technically from 2018, but it was also nominated at this year's Oscars as a 2019 film. My summary, after a fairy sinks... Many people lost their lives due to the poor response from authorities. After a ferry sank, got my tenses right here. Many people lost their lives due to the poor response from authorities. I gave this an 80 as well. So all, all three films have an 80, and, and the margin between them is, is very, very minuscule. It has a no score on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is a film called In the Absence. It is a foreign language documentary short film directed by Yi Sung Jun, uh, which it's another South Korean film. And it's from a, an event that took place in 2014. I never heard of it until seeing this documentary. Uh, but at the time, there was a ferry that uh, sank off the coast of South Korea. Uh, in 2014, and many, 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 many people lost their lives because of the poor response from authorities, uh, from politicians, from leaders, people in power, and all these years later, uh, families and of, of the victims and the survivors are still, you know, still, you know, hoping to, you know, get justice for all of this, for all that took place, for everything that happened. In the absence, goes through these events, talks to the people that it happened to, talks to the people in the power, shows you real footage uh, that's that's damning, that's, that's awful. It's, it's a powerful, but also depressing, you know, short documentary. And it you know, if you've seen Sully and, you know, the sort of, you know, in Sully, 
the landing on the Hudson is, you know, a heroic thing. He, he lands this plane that otherwise would have killed, you know, who knows how many people, well, I guess they would have known how many people, but many of the people on board and man, you know, what a, what an amazing heroic took charge, took responsibility, did the right thing. Great. In the absence is the exact opposite of that. Uh, everyone who had the power to save lives didn't do it, whether that was because of, you know, admitting a mistake, uh, you know, or, or following protocol or, you know, third, fourth, fifth thing. It, man, it, it really, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a perfect storm of everyone doing the wrong thing. And more to that, it's just so disheartening and and painful to see all these people who lost someone a uh, you know uh you know a brother a sister a son a daughter and how poorly these pe- these these survivors these families these uh you know the victims were treated uh from start to end of this process it, it's it's truly truly miserable in that sense um so, you know, I guess that's not the greatest uh, pitch to why you should check it out. But if you want to learn about this incident, maybe you don't know, maybe you didn't know anything about it either, or maybe you want to see some, uh, you know, a, a damn good short film, uh, In the Absence is that. Absolutely. Um, in the Absence. My number four from January 2020. My number three. So one of the two films that goes back a ways in terms of when it came out uh, is a film I saw January 19th. It is 125 minutes long. It is from 2009, so a little over 10 years ago. My summary, a retired legal counselor hopes to find closure by writing about a case he once worked. Gave this an 81. It has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this is The Secret in Their Eyes. This won Best Foreign Language Film uh, for the year it was released, for the year it contended. And it is a Spanish film from Spain. Slash, uh, it's, it's attributed to Spain and Argentina on Letterboxd. It is directed by Juan Jose Campanella. Campanella. Uh, and it stars Ricardo Darín, Soledad Villamil, and Pablo Rago, among others. It's a film I've had on my list for quite some time. Finally, finally checked it out last month. Um, so the secret in your in their eyes is, I mean, it's 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 um, beautifully acted. Uh, one of the elements of the film is it spans a lot of different time periods, decades, and. You know, I think the character or the actors all do a great job of performing as their characters across that time span. I, the makeup, mm, not quite as great, but the performances all work under that uh, umbrella. the The film looks really well, looks really great. Uh, you know, has and it tells a good story. I think it tells a really fascinating story, and it looks at our main character, uh, Benjamin Esposito, who 
many decades ago when he was, you know, kind of just starting out, he fell in love with his boss. He was part of a case that never um, was never resolved. And now looking back on that, he's trying to get closure by writing the story of that time. And in doing so, he's uncovering the, the past and, and things he didn't know about. Uh, we see the past events as they happened uh, through his eyes. And we see how they impact and reflect on his present as he's learning these new, some new details as he goes through the story. Uh, the, the performances by, by Doreen and Villamil are wonderful. I, I really, really enjoyed the two of them. Uh, the, the film itself kind of is an up and down thing. It's at times very slow, but there are some incredibly powerful and engaging sequences throughout it. There is a one take uh, a long take in about the middle of the movie, I would, if I remember correctly, that is just brilliant. Uh, great, great, great choreography and 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 technical uh, merit involved in in the creation of it. Uh, that that really, I I had to rewind it and watch it a second time as soon as it ended. Uh, I was kind of so taken by it, and. On top of that, it has a very satisfying resolution to the unresolved case that he worked and to, you know, the love that he had uh, for his superior. So it manages to tell an engaging and engrossing story with two main, you know, kind of question marks that kind of sit on the back burner throughout the whole movie as... You know, we're we're watching these these events unfold, but the question is: we know that he loved her; she didn't receive it; she didn't reciprocate, or we know that somebody got you know there was a murder that took place, and we don't know who did it or, or why. So, so both of those hang over the balance, hang over the film for the duration of it. And when we get to the end, when we get to this, the revelations, the realizations, the the uh, resolution, the exp- uh, explanation of what was going on. It really is a, a rewarding and satisfying payoff. And I think that is a, a huge, huge strength that The Secret in Their Eyes um, has. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it takes, it puts, you know, it, it puts things on, into perspective, this, you know, magnifying what, you know, we all have regrets, things that, that, you know, we lay awake at night thinking about and wondering if maybe if I had done something different, something else, you know, I, I would have achieved a different result. And this is, you know, the epitome of, of what that is and that feeling. And I think Campanella, 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 double L, Campanella, does a good job of, of honing in. I suppose is is a way to, I would say honing in on that feeling and uh, the uh, and the way it it diffuses throughout um, a person's life and diffu- or not I don't know if diffuses is the right word either but sort of uh, takes over takes over. So, The Secret in Their Eyes, highly recommend. Uh, I think it's on Amazon. You can rent it there. 
and uh, that is my number three. Number three for January. We're making, getting there. Uh, we're getting there. My number two won't take us too long to talk about. I've touched on it quite a bit. It won two Circle of Film Awards. Uh, saw it January 9th, 2020. It's 109 minutes long. It is a 2019 film. My summary two soldiers are tasked with delivering a message to halt an attack I gave this an 82 it has 90 percent on rotten tomatoes and that's sam mendes's 1917 starring george mckay dean charles chapman mark strong andrew scott richard madden colin firth and benedict cumberbatch among others um 1917 oscar winning film uh just won three oscars nominated for best picture it was a uh, I would even say the front runner to win Best Picture and Best Director, which it ultimately lost to Parasite. It is a technical marvel. It is a film presented in one take that has some of the best cinematography, score, visual effects, um, you know, editing, sound work, etc., 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 production design uh, that that a film could have, really. It really captures the chaos of war and the drive to leave an impact and to, to kind of save, you know, you have a mission and 1917 is, is singularly about a mission and following George McCain, Dean Charles Chaplin as they carry out that mission is very um, engaging. McKay is wonderful. I thought he does a really good job uh, of anchoring this film and... I, I, don't know, I can't say enough good things about the, the technical side of it. From a story perspective, it, it's a little weaker. Uh, I connected to this story, and I think that helped out a lot. But there are definitely issues with it as, a, as something that is um, you know, very simple. And because it is so simple, and because it kind of has to be so simple due to the structure of this film and the one-take element, uh, it, it, it's a big film. It is a huge task, giant undertaking, uh, you know, and Mendes, you know, he really goes for a lot of new and, and dynamic decisions that uh, some of the other films that have done this aspect, you know, like a Birdman, like a Rope, uh, which are the main two I think of outside of 1917, uh, Victoria even, uh, they're not as big, you know, they don't have as many grand uh, expectations for, for what is possible with a film like this. And part of what suffers when you try to get bigger than those types of stories, like Rope takes place pretty much in the same room. Uh, Birdman takes place on the same city block basically and most of it takes place in the same building 1917 spans miles and miles of terrain and because there's no cutting my biggest issue with the film is you notice and and you know every single moment of this movie has to be important and Obviously, of course, a mission like the one that McKay and, and Chapman are on is of the utmost importance. You think of how many lives you can save. But that being said, 
when you have a film that cuts, that doesn't present itself in one take, you can cut away the moments that aren't important. That's kind of the whole point. 1917 doesn't do that, and therefore it fills even those moments that are unimportant with important elements, and that really drives home the, uh, for me, the the fact that this is a lot of conveniences, one on top of each other. You know, if you're taking a trip from point A to point B, and, you know, three important things happen along the way, uh, you know, you see those three moments. And I don't have an issue with that. I don't, you know, the, the convenience of that doesn't hit home. But that's because when you see that element in a movie, it's usually, you see the person get in their car, or whatever it would be, then cut to the first thing, cut to the second thing, cut to the third thing. 1917 has, okay, we're going from point A to point B, and it's important on our, you know, we have like A1, which is important, A2 is important, A3, and then A, B1, B2, B3, B, and every single step along the way, every single second is important, just like it is in every other film, except now it's happening in real time, and very few films can do that and pull that off uh, without it feeling ridiculously convenient. Um, and I would lob this same complaint at, you know, uh, a Victoria or a Rope or nineteen uh, or a Birdman, uh, with the caveat that there, those stories aren't telling. I don't like their stories. Don't feel so punctuated the way 1917s do and i think that for me is is what is what drags i still really enjoyed this film but i think that is what drags the score down for me if, of, of all the things that i can discuss about it so my number two best new film i saw in january is 1917 from sam mendes which brings me to my second film that is not from the last year or so as our number one this is our number one number one film i saw for the first time in january i saw it january 22nd it is 143 minutes long so longest film of this top 10 list it is from 1963 my summary a parisian policeman gives up everything for a sex worker i gave it an 88 it has a 79 percent on rotten tomatoes it is directed by Billy Wilder, and it stars Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. And this is Irma LaDuce. Irma LaDuce. Uh, it's a film I've heard about. I had, I've, you know, I'm familiar with it for a while, and only just got it. Just chose to check it out and give it a look. I am a huge, huge Billy Wilder fan. I think he's exceptional. Uh, one of my favorite writer-directors of all time. Uh, he's made some of my favorite films. He does comedies and he does dramas. Irma LaDuce is absolutely a comedy with some a slapdash of romance thrown in. I could tell you more about the plot, um, but it is very convoluted and somehow very easy to follow. Uh, in short, Jack Lemmon plays the Parisian policeman. He ends up losing his job and falling for Shirley MacLaine, who is playing a sex worker. And he, he Jack Lemmon, comes up with a, a plan 
a a a um a plan to ultimately stop Shirley MacLaine from being a sex worker by figuring out a way to provide them with the money for it. And in the process, uh, gets mixed up in many, many ridiculous hijinks. Not to be not to be skipped over, there is th- the main third character of the film is Lou Jacoby, who plays the mustache, uh, who has and and this is where I think Wilder's writing really highlights it just it just it's so beautiful it's so wonderful Jacoby's mustache he plays the, the sort of um the barkeep of a uh, across the street from the hotel that uh, McLean does has her job in for for lack of a better phrasing and he becomes friends kind of with Jack Lemon he's in on the you know nefarious nature of the sex workers that all live in the vicinity and he is just such a character such a such a wonderful 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 character who he 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 always has a way he could connect to the events that are happening at that time uh i think you could probably there a dozen or more times throughout the film where he's like oh yeah you know i used to be in the war or a lawyer, or a doctor, or a scientist, or this, or that, or this, or that, and I, you know, that's the kind of thing that, in general, I would find annoying or or frustrating or grating, and it takes a combination of Lou Jacoby's wonderful performance and and understanding mustache as a character so well, his delivery of the lines, but the writing of the lines they aren't grandiose they aren't over the top you know this is a character that if you believe everything he's saying uh you know has lived a hundred lifetimes and he's you know, let's say in his late 40s early 50s maybe older younger i'm now curious uh jacoby was 50 yeah there you go late 40s early 50s perfect uh you know would have lived a hundred lifetimes in the span of his 50 years uh, which is of course not possible but there's always there's that sneaking suspicion and you know some of them have to be true based on some of the events of this film but you can't really ever be sure which and his presence in the film uh, is just I, I love it so much uh, I, I think he was so fun so wonderful of course Jack Lemon is great you know he uh, I, I was worried at the start of the film how anti, you know, sex work and free living the film started out as. But the further, the deeper we got in, uh, and and the more sort of uh, free will the film was able to uh, support and, and care about, I, I really warmed up to it in in such a such a such a nice way. It's a really long movie. Wilder made really long comedies. Uh, there's a good chance there's a really long comedy of his in my top ten list for February as well. And it's again part of you know the, the testament to his writing and direction that he's able to pull off long comedies from you know sixty years ago that are still funny that earn their length 
uh, you know, this three-time Oscar nominee uh, is Irma LaDuce. Uh, Shirley MacLaine was nominated for her performance. She's great in it. The cinematography was nominated. It won Best Score. It, I, I just, um, I know, I cannot uh, endorse Billy Wilder's films enough. And Irma LaDuce is yet another home run of my uh, of his for me you know it's uh i don't know you know it's i think a lot of people are gonna you know it's it's, it can be simple at times but and and i'm sure some people find it a little long but for me it, it held its own the whole time it was you know on screen and uh the simple story is given a lot of complications in through the jack through jack lemon's insane plot uh to free Shirley MacLaine from her sex life, her sex working life. So I love it, and uh, if you've never seen it, I'd say check it out. Irma LaDuce. It is free on Amazon Prime, if you have Amazon Prime. Maybe other places. Uh, you can rent it pretty much anywhere, so no excuses. Check out Irma LaDuce. My top 10 from January 2020. Refreshing them once more. Number 10, moving to number 1, Varda by Agnes, Loop, One Child Nation, Kim Ji Young, born 1982, Invisible Life, Weathering with You, In the Absence, The Secret in Their Eyes, 1917, and Irma LaDuce. Thank you for listening to today's episode. It's coming out a little late, but hopefully that's okay. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can head over to iTunes, Stitcher, places where podcasts can be found. You can also find out all the episodes on the website, circleoffilm.com, and uh, other places and other things, rather, not places. You can find me on Twitter. Nope. Yeah. Man, I am just a little frazzled. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Circle of Film. You can find me on Letterboxd at Circle of Film. You can fi- email circleoffilm at gmail.com about anything and everything, ever. Uh, or you can support the show. Rate it, review it, subscribe to it, tell somebody about it, uh, or just listen. Listening is uh, the best thing you can do. If you are so inclined, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash circle of film, where for as little as eight cents an episode, you can get early access to all episodes that are released early. Obviously not this one. And uh, of course, before I end the episode, I have to thank Brian for being such a considerate patron of the show. It does mean so much. And as always, have a week. So long, I know she'll never leave me Even as she fades from view So long, farewell, I'll be to say adieu Nothing's really left or lost without a trace Nothing's gone forever, only out of place So long, farewell, oh, I'll be to say Wait a minute. Wait a minute.